Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI members reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This hasn't happened in Japan in decades and decades. Fumio, the present prime minister, is a very solid guy. Japan is a very, very stable ally. It is clearly now the will of the parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new prime minister. Two world leaders gone. Boris Johnson from Scandal and Shinzo Abe from an assassin's bullet. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on how we can have a recession with full employment. It's not something we have ever seen uh, before. And Deborah Jackson of Plum Alley on what a downturn could mean for venture capital. Will the market be there? In my opinion, look look at history. influential leaders left the world stage this week. First, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson quit after a soap opera played out at number 10 Downing Street. 
I abhor uh, bullying and abuse of power anywhere uh, in Parliament, uh, in this party or in any other party. None of that explains why he promoted him in the first place. I'm not going to trivialise uh, what happened. It's absolutely true, Mr Speaker, that it was raised with me. I greatly regret that he continued uh, in office. Ultimately leading to Prime Minister Johnson stepping down and triggering a search for a new government. And then, at the end of the week, an assassin took the life of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Prime Minister Abe was an extraordinary partner. Uh, and someone who clearly was a great leader for Japan. NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg said that he would welcome Sweden and Finland into the alliance and said, by the way, there's room for more. This is an historic day for Finland, for Sweden, for NATO and for Euro-Atlantic security. While minutes from the FOMC meeting last month did nothing to suggest that the Fed is looking to back off of its tightening path, regardless of the recession risk. In recent uh, discussions, Powell has been very, very clear that, uh, that he understands they have a big problem and they need to be more and more restrictive. In the midst of the turmoil, the great and the good of media and tech gathered for their annual Sun Valley retreat, with Discovery's David Zaslav saying the downturn could be good for his media behemoth. A lot of turmoil in the business, but that means, I think, a lot of opportunity. And with all that, the week still wasn't over, with U.S. jobs numbers on Friday coming in higher than anticipated in number and a bit lower in wage growth, indicating that the economy is still strong, much stronger, as it turned out, than Elon Musk's promise to buy Twitter. Because Friday evening, we learned that Mr. Musk had thought better of the deal he'd offered and was calling the whole thing off. Well, what did the markets make of all this wild week? Well, stocks were up, with the S&P 500 higher by just under 2%, and the Nasdaq rising 4 6%, while bonds sold off a bit, leaving the 10-year yield just above 3% rather than just under as it was last week, and the dollar posted another week of gains. Here to help us sort it all out are Liz Ann Saunders, Chief Strategist for Charles Schwab, and Lena Lee, Causeway Capital Management Fundamental Portfolio Manager. So let me start, Liz Ann, if I could with you. What did we learn from the markets this week on the economy? You know, if we start with the jobs number, I don't want to say on the surface it was uh, strong. I think there was, you could you could nitpick a little bit with the average work week down, as you mentioned, David, wages uh, coming down. But I think that the shift in the market maybe had less to do with some change in outlook for the economy um, because you just sort of, for whatever reason, saw speculative juices sort of kick in again, the leadership back in those highly speculation-driven, lower-quality segments of the market, which at this point looks a little bit more like your typical bear market rally where you see just some counter-trend moves versus new assessment of either the inflation or the uh, economic landscape. And I'm not sure the, the jobs data changed that to any significant degree either. So, Ellen, what about from your point of view as, a, as an investor? here. Uh, is it time to say maybe there is an area for a bear market rally or is this just a tiny blip? You know, the real earnings hit will come in second half as we're seeing, we're hearing from companies, especially retailers, saying they're already seeing weakness uh, from consumers. And I believe this is a, a tiny blip. Rates are up, you know, investment sentiment is down and consumers especially to the middle, to the lower level of the income level, they're getting squeezed and we're already seeing consumer 
uh, down trading. Lizanne, what about the consumer of the U.S. economy? Can we count on the consumer yet again? I don't think so. I, I don't know that we see a, a significant implosion, but what you're seeing in the data already is a slowdown in demand, a slowdown of spending, especially in the stay-at-home area, the goods-oriented side of the economy, which if there's a silver lining, that bodes well for those components of metrics like CPI and inflation, because that was the breeding ground for the inflation problem with which we're still dealing. So that's a, a positive sign. You know, there's this debate out there about excess savings and, and the strength of household balance sheets. David, we talked about that earlier. And the only rub with that analysis, if you do it in the aggregate, it doesn't pick up the fact that most of that call it excess savings, is concentrated up the income spectrum. So I, I think the, the surge that was represented by the consumer in the economy coming out of the lockdowns, I think that's, that's very much in the review. Such a good point. Thank you so much. Lizanne Saunders and Alan Lee will be staying with us as we turn to some investment advice in a somewhat conflicted market. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. But even the slowdown seemed to be slowing down. 
While the mixed news there carried some unexpected blessings, such as a temporary drop in the unemployment rate, the hope that the recession might squeeze out substantial amounts of inflation seemed to be generally fading, even in the government's forecasts. And so, with eminently good cause to panic and crash, the stock market, that perverse little devil, rallied and surged. And that was the way Louis Rukeyser saw it on Wall Street Week in the, back in the fall of 1979. We were trying to address a much bigger beast of inflation and looking for an economic downturn to do the trick. Lizanne Saunders of Charles Schwab and Ellen Lee of Causeway Capital Management have stayed with us. So Ellen, let me start to you, with you about specific investment advice because I came across this and find it intriguing idea of idiosyncratic self-help, I think you call it. What does that tell us about a company? So basically at Causeway, we're looking at companies on a bottom-up basis. So I'm trying to find you know, risk reward where we're taking a conservative view on the outlook of the company, but there are things within the control of the company where the company can increase its earnings and better the business model of the company. So an example I will use here is a company called Unilever, you know, based in UK slash Netherlands a massive uh, consumer company. They recently had Nelson Peltz, a shareholder activist, come in and join the board. And this is actually great news because the restructuring that they had take on themselves, you know, is going to be accelerated by a shareholder, minority shareholder advocate to push things forward. They had not been as good as pushing the innovations as uh, in a timely manner. We believe in activists being there will really push the management to accelerate that timetable. And this has nothing to do with the economic slowdown we talked about in the previous segment, because they're doing things internally to really energize their sales and ultimately increase earnings of the company. So, Lizanne, let me put that in somewhat different terms, which Ellen may <laughs> agree with or disagree with. You know, we say a rising tide lifts all boats. I think what she's saying is that when the tide's not going up, you have to find some boats that float a little better than other boats do. Uh, what are you looking for, Lizanne, in terms of advising people on investments right now? Yeah, so we have we've really been taking more of a factor-based approach versus, say, either a sector-based approach or trying to pick your traditional style boxes of, of large cap, small cap growth value. And really what the theme has been around the factors we've been emphasizing is sort of a quality wrapper um, and almost hybrid factors where, where you look for reasonable value, but, but also especially in what we think, and, and I know Ellen agrees, we're go, heading into... I think a more earnings constrained environment. So when that happens, earnings become more dear and there's more value then to companies that have that higher profitability, have that positive earnings revisions trend while also keeping in mind the need to have strong free cash flow, healthy balance sheet with high cash, low debt. You, you sort of look at the macro picture, see what's lacking, and then look for companies uh, that have that in relative terms. And you can apply factor-based analysis or factor-based screening, and Bloomberg has great data on factors across the spectrum of large cap, small cap. Um, you can look for growth characteristics in stocks that live in the value indexes and vice versa. So I think it's you're less constrained when you take a factor approach than if you're just trying to make a sector call or two. Let me put a geographic lens on this, if I could. And I'll start with you here. Uh, what about Europe? What about China? Some people or investors are saying right now China is a good place, for example, to look because they're loosening monetary policy at the same time the rest of the world is tightening it. I think in you know China recently there's been a lot of bad news priced in. 
because of the regulatory risk and the COVID policy. And as an investor myself, looking at companies on a bottom-up basis, you know, the fact that there is, you know, that they have they're in a loosening policy. Plus, you know, hopefully in in the foreseeable future, the zero COVID policy goes away. I think there are companies like Macau casino operators like Las Vegas Sands or Sands China that could really benefit from a reopening of the country. And hence, you know, we find those opportunities to be uh, very attractive in the current time. And in the case of Europe, you know, Euro, you, you mentioned earlier in the segment, you know, dollars never been stronger. And now, you know, with Europe, what it's faced with the Ukraine uh, situation, there's going to be a lot of fiscal spending to beef up its infrastructure. I know there's a lot of concerns about recession because energy prices are going up. But if you are able to find companies where they're going to be beneficiaries of more spending because energy infrastructure has to go uh, has to be beefed up, you will find good opportunities in those markets as well. Lizanne, opportunities geographically? Yeah, so I think th there's still probably some storms that are going to have to be weathered uh, globally uh, with, with bouts of volatility, especially given what's going on in currency markets and not to mention the, the war and the impact on the consumption side of economies in, uh, in Europe. But I think thinking from a more secular standpoint, longer term, I think when we, whenever we do come out of this I like to think of it as a dual cycle when we're through the bear market, when we're through the recession that that I think is either happening or will happen. What tends to happen when you come out of those dual cycles, especially if they're global in nature, is you tend to see a, a change in, in where leadership resides from a macro perspective. And it is our view that we're going to see more the greater benefits of diversification outside the United States. That's different than saying we think, you know, non-U.S. is going to handily outperform U.S., but there hasn't been that benefit of that global diversification. We think that's the next secular shift. Lizanne, I can't let you go without asking about Elon Musk and Twitter here. I know you don't like to invest by sectors. Does that phenomenon tell us anything about the sector of tech, or is it, should I use the word idiosyncratic when it comes to Elon Musk? I don't think it's, it's a newsflash that he's a... Uh, bit of a quirky guy. So uh, I think making a broader inference about the the industry, um, at least at this point, I think is a, is a stretch. I think it is more idiosyncratic. That's the popular word of our segments here today. <laughs> Does that sound right to you, Ellen? <laughs> totally agree. Okay, that's nice to end on a note of agreement here. Many <laughs> thanks now to Ellen Lee of Causeway Capital Management and also to Liz Ann Saunders of Charles Schwab. Coming up, the economic slowdown is hitting the public markets hard, but what's going on behind the scenes in venture capital? We asked Deborah Jackson of Plum Valley. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Neil Armstrong waited six hours and 39 minutes to step onto the surface of the moon. Jackie Robinson waited 20 months to play his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And even DiCaprio had to wait 22 years to win an Oscar. You can wait until your destination. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
Whether you call it a recession. There's probably close to a 50-50 chance, maybe it's a bit less than that, that we've had two negative quarters in a row. Or not. I think there's nothing inevitable about this recession. There is no question at this point that the economy is slowing, changing the world, whether it's the world of stocks. We're pretty close. You know, it's um, it's sort of a, a losing game to call the bottom of the market. Or of credit. Spreads were, again, uh, much lower than you might look at from a 10-year average relative to economic outcomes. But what about the world of patient capital? Capital directed toward long-term innovation. Capital that's meant to change the world. President Biden's special climate envoy, John Kerry, thinks that there's a lot of money in venture capital still headed toward new technologies directed to the energy transition. It is appropriate, I think, to have a gas transition while you bring technology to scale that is going to change altogether what we're doing. And frankly, there's about a trillion dollars of venture capital already moving towards these new technologies. But others, like Vinod Kosla of Kosla Ventures, think the downturn will have to affect at least the more vulnerable venture capital firms. So I do think, given the hype we've seen the last five years, we will see a decline in returns. The good firms continue to be disciplined about valuations, but uh, I do think in general for the industry we'll see a decline. The best firms will still do well. Deborah Jackson is at the very center of venture capital with a firm that she founded and now runs. It's called Plum Alley, and we welcome her now to Wall Street Week. Great to have you here, Deborah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, David. So the big question is, there's a downturn, without a doubt. Uh, you look at the markets, whether it's equities or debt or whatever, downturn. Is it affecting venture capital, and if so, how? Well, the big macro issues that we're facing in the public markets, like inflation, um, supply chain challenges, and also things like the recent Supreme Court ruling that would affect EPA regulations, all of those factors come into play for the public markets. They also have implications in the private markets. However, the private markets are very, very different. So the private markets, when you think of venture, Investors are looking at the medium-term time frame, not like short day-to-day -day trading and immediate effects, but more over a course of seven years for a Series A level financing. And so there are, it's a, it's a medium-term kind of investor mentality that's happening. I think it's important to know that there is so much money that's been put out into venture capital over the last few years. In 2021, we had a record amount. It was 97% over the previous year. So you think about it. We have this huge amount of capital that's already been deployed into early stage companies. We also have about 600, $330 million of dry powder that's already been raised and ready to deploy. So what does that mean? That really means that these venture firms, early stage companies, have a lot of fuel in the tank to keep going, to weather this current market situation. Does that large amount of money, even huge amount of money, make your job more difficult? You're looking presumably for really great opportunities. Yes. Uh, if there are a lot of people in there, uh, maybe maybe not as disciplined as Plum Alley is, what does that mean to valuations? Are people overbidding? Do you have a tough time finding uh, proper prices for what you want yes. to invest in? Yes. So at Plum Alley, we're very, very focused on the fundamentals. And I come from Wall Street. I spent 20 years on Wall Street at Goldman and other places. 
as do my team members. So we come at looking at venture from a kind of fundamental point of view, which means, do the companies have revenue? Do they have real customers? Do they have a real product that we need in the world? If the answer to that is yes, then you drill down and look at the numbers. And in our case, the companies that we funded have revenues, but we only look at you know, six to seven times current revenues for a SaaS company. Mm. And in the market, that number's been about 12 times revenues. So we have seen this situation where valuations have been way overpriced. Um, and I think that's a reflection of the fact there is so much capital coming into the market. When there's a lot of capital in the market, it pumps up valuations. But that's also presumably part of why there's a lot of dry powder, because if, you, if you're only willing to go seven yes. times and people are spending 12 times, you don't spend the money. You have to sit on your money until you find the proper valuation. Where are the opportunities that you find right now that make sense? Well, we, we've invested now $65 million in 27 companies. So we've been at this for five years. So we have had the opportunity to see the market change over time. But we have stuck to our knitting. We have stuck to the fundamentals, which is do, what are the revenues? What is the company actually doing? Is the company essential for our future survival and for more productivity in industry? Does it really matter versus companies that are sort of optional, like dog walking apps? Deborah Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. Deborah Jackson is with Plum Alley. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We are joined once again this week by our very special contributor to Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, thanks so much for your coming to us, actually, from Sun Valley. It's good of you to do. Uh, we've lost, it strikes me, two world leaders, in a sense, this week in very different circumstances. Boris Johnson, of course, forced to step down as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. But then, at the end of the week, we lost to an assassin's bullet, Shinzo Abe, the longest-serving Japanese Prime Minister in history. I, I wonder, is this telling us anything larger about the state of the world when we have these sorts of events in a single week? You know, what the assassination of Shinzo Abe in Japan is a tragedy. It is a tragedy for his family. It is a tragedy for uh, Japan. It is a tragedy for the Japanese-American relationship, which is a linchpin of our whole approach uh, to Asia. Ultimately, I think it is a uh, global uh, tragedy. And I have to think about what it represents. And it represents a manifestation of a kind of swirling anger uh, that seems far too pervasive in our politics almost everywhere in the world. In a very different way, Brexit, Boris Johnson's ascendancy represents that kind of swirling anger and his ultimately falling uh, from power is a product of these kinds of divisions. And we certainly see this uh, in our own country with the question of orderly succession of power on uh, the table with the bitter controversies that surround uh, the uh, Supreme Court. And so I think ultimately all of us have to reckon with uh, this uh, rage um, that seems to be a feature that cuts across uh, very, very many uh, societies. And that is going to be a, uh, a framing uh, aspect as we discuss the more narrow particulars of economic policy going forward. Larry, it strikes me that uh, former Prime Minister Abe had a fairly profound, I believe, macroeconomic effect, unlike a lot of prime ministers and that matter presidents, even had it named after him, Abenomics. What was Abenomics, and in the end, did it work? Abenomics was an attempt uh, to jolt uh, the Japanese economy out of two decades of uh, secular stagnation and disinflation with 
radically expansionary policy, both on the fiscal side and on the monetary side, and with uh, structural policies like major efforts to get women working and enfranchised in uh, the labor force. And I, I think one would have to say that it was a success by the standards of what had come before, but it was not a fully mission uh, accomplished in terms of what was happening uh, in uh, Japan. But I think it will be remembered as one of the more aggressive and successful reprogrammings of macroeconomic strategy that we've seen in a long time. And if, as I fear, um, after this current inflationary episode, the issues of absorbing savings, secular stagnation that we've talked about on and off on uh, this show recur in Europe and in the United States, then I think that Abenomic legacy will be studied very, very carefully because in some sense, Japan was the first to experience uh, the challenge of demographic uh, contraction and of excess saving, but it may not ultimately be the last. Uh, bringing it back to the United States and some of those questions you just mentioned about inflation, uh, we got jobs numbers at the end of this week, uh, higher in the terms of the overall addition to jobs, at the same time a little lower than was expected by some at least in the wage increases. What did you make of the jobs numbers? Look, I think we have a very ambiguous uh, economy uh, right now. We've got indicators of strength in many in many sectors, particularly travel and uh, services. This was a strong employment report once again in, a, in an economy where the labor force only grows by 50 or 75,000 people a month. You can't forever be creating 375,000 uh, jobs. Uh, there's nothing here to suggest uh, that uh, the economy is currently collapsing into uh, recession. And we certainly could have seen a wage inflation number that was much more alarming. And so from that point of view, I think there was a little bit of reassurance on uh, inflation here. But we still have a very ambiguous uh, picture. I don't think that this changes fundamentally the picture we had uh, coming in. So I think that most people are saying there's little in these jobs numbers that would indicate to the Federal Reserve that they should back off at least yet the rate hikes. Do you agree with that? And what factors should they be looking at as they determine whether in fact and when they should back off? I think that there's nothing here that should change somebody's mind in a major way about what monetary policy is going to need to need to do at the next meeting or at uh, probably the meeting uh, after uh, the next uh, meeting. I think what would uh, start to change things would uh, be very strong evidence that the economy was slowing substantially 
in an across-the-board way with respect to consumption and uh, investment demand. I think if you saw a precipitous decline in the level of uh, vacancies and level of labor turnover, that would be an indicator that I would be watching. But as long as we're in almost unprecedented, or actually unprecedented territory in terms of the ratio of job openings to uh, unemployed people, I don't think we can stop being uh, concerned about uh, inflation. Larry, it's always so helpful to hear from you. Thank you so much. That's Larry Summers, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. He is, of course, from Harvard University. Finally, one more thought. Suddenly, everyone's an expert on the economy. When President Biden first proposed that massive $1.9 trillion American rescue plan back in January of 2021, our own special contributor Larry Summers was first to say that it was just too big, particularly coming after two earlier rounds. You're talking about something that relative to the GDP gap is six times as large. But White House economists said it was needed and would not be inflationary, given the state of the problem and of the economy. The risks of doing too little far outweigh the risks of doing too much. And Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell, who, by the way, is trained as a lawyer, not an economist, stuck with the transitory claim as long as he could before finally admitting that he had been wrong. What did we get wrong? And that really was looking at these supply side issues and believing that they would be resolved relatively quickly. But at least that was a bunch of economists disagreeing with one another. Now we're going way past those trained in the dark arts of economics. Inflation rules the game. Inflation fears are in your head. Inflation is high. Inflation, that's the bigger problem right now. It is understandable that the president has to weigh in on the issues. So last week, Mr. Biden, who by the way is a lawyer, took to Twitter to explain why he thought gas prices are too high blaming the companies reaping record profits. I call on the companies to pass this along every penny of this 18 cents reduction to the consumers. But then Jeff Bezos, whose degrees are in electrical engineering and computer science, decided to give the president a lecture on economics, responding again on Twitter, calling Biden's words misdirection or a deep misunderstanding which in turn led John Kirby from the White House, who's a retired rear admiral trained in international relations and national security, to spring the president's defense. Anybody that knows President Biden knows he's plain spoken, and he tells you exactly what he's thinking and in terms that everybody can understand. So I think we obviously take great exception at the idea that this is somehow misdirection. And not to be left out of all the fun, President Vladimir Putin of Russia apparently decided to impose his own solution for inflation by imposing an excess profits tax on Gazprom without all that fancy economic talk. In the end, it is easy for those of us to second guess those who are making the decisions, particularly when they seem to be going wrong or at least have unintended consequences. Which brings us back to that font of so much wisdom from over a century ago. It was former President Teddy Roosevelt at the Sorbonne in 1910 who said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. There is no question that President Biden, the one now in Roosevelt's arena, has dared greatly when it comes to the economy. Now we all have to hope, for all of our sake, that there's triumph at the end of this rocky road. 
That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.